Section six of the Underground Railroad Part three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Underground Railroad Part three by William Still. Section six. Captain F arrives with nine passengers. Names of passengers Peter Hines, Eatontown, North Carolina, Matthew Bodams, Plymouth, North Carolina, James Morris, South End, North Carolina, Charles Thompson, Charity Thompson, Nathaniel Bowser, and Thomas Cooper, Portsmouth, Virginia, George Anderson, Elkton, Maryland. Their arrival was announced by Thomas Garrett as follows. Wilmington, 7th month, 19th, 1856. Respected friend William Still, I now have the pleasure of consigning to thy care four able-bodied human beings from North Carolina and five from Virginia, one of which is a girl twelve or thirteen years of age, the rest all men. After thee has seen and conversed with them, thee can determine what is best to be done with them. I am assured they are such as can take good care of themselves. Elijah Pennypacker, some time since, informed me he could find employment in his neighborhood for two or three good hands. I should think that those from Carolina would be about as safe in that neighborhood as any place this side of Canada. Wishing our friends a safe trip, I remain thy sincere friend, Thomas Garrett. After conferring with Harry Crage, we have concluded to send five or six of them tonight in the cars, and the balance, if those go safe, tomorrow night, or in the steamboat on second day morning, directed to the anti-slavery office. There was much rejoicing over these selected passengers, and very much interesting information was elicited from them. Peter was only twenty-one years of age, composed of equal parts of Anglo-Saxon and Anglo-African blood, rather a model-looking article, with a fair share of intelligence. As a slave, he had fared pretty well. He had neither been abused nor stinted of food or clothing, as many others had been. His duties had been to attend upon his master and reputed father, Elias Hines, Esquire, a lawyer by profession in North Carolina. No charges whatever appear to have been made against Mr. Hines, according to the record book, but Peter seemed filled with great delight at the prospects ahead, as well as with the success that had attended his efforts thus far in striking for freedom. James was twenty-seven years of age. His experience had been quite different from that of Peter's. The heel of a woman, by the name of Mrs. Anne McCourt, had been on James's neck, and she had caused him to suffer severely. As James recounted his grievances, while under the rule, he by no means gave her a very flattering character, but on the contrary, he plainly stated that she was a desperate woman, that he had never known any good of her, and that he was moved to escape to get rid of her. In other words, she had threatened to sell him. This well-nigh produced frenzy in James's mind, for too well did he remember that he had already been sold three times, and in different stages of his bondage had been treated quite cruelly. In the change of masters, he was positive in saying that he had not found a good one, and besides, he entertained the belief that such personages were very rare. Those of the committee who listened to James were not a little amazed at his fluency, intelligence, and earnestness, and acknowledged that he dealt unusually telling blows against the patriarchal institution. 
Matthew was twenty-three years of age, very stout, no fool, a man of decided resolution, and of the very best black complexion produced in the South. Matthew had a very serious bill of complaints against Samuel Simmons, who professed to own him, Matthew, both body and mind, while in this world at least. Among these complaints was the charge of ill-treatment. Nevertheless, Matthew's joy and pleasure were matchless over his underground railroad triumph, and the prospect of being so soon out of the land and reach of slavery, and in a land where he could enjoy his freedom as others enjoy theirs. Indeed, the entire band evinced similar feelings. Matthew left a brother in Martin County. Further sketches of this interesting company were not entered on the book at the time, perhaps on account of the great press of underground railroad business, which engaged the attention of the acting committee. However, they were all duly cared for, and counseled to go to Canada, where their rights would be protected by a strong and powerful government, and they could enjoy all the rights of citizenship in common with all the world and the rest of mankind. And especially were they advised to get education, to act as men, and remember those still in bonds as bound with them, and that they must not forget to write back, after their arrival in Canada, to inform their friends in Philadelphia of their prospects, and what they thought of the goodly land. Thus, with the usual underground railroad passports, they were again started Canada-ward. Without difficulty of any kind, they duly reached Canada, and a portion of them wrote back as follows. Toronto, C.W., August 17, 1856. Mr. Still, Dear Sir, These few lines may find you as they leave us, as are well at present and arrived safe in Toronto. Give our respects to Mrs. S. and daughter. Toronto is a very extensive place. We have plenty of pork, beef, and mutton. There are five market houses and many churches. Female wages is sixty-two and one-half cents per day. Men's wages is one dollar and York shilling. We are now boarding at Mr. George Blunt's on Center Street, two doors from Elm, back of Lawyer's Hall, and when you write to us, direct your letter to the care of Mr. George Blunt, etc. Signed, James Monroe, Peter Hines, Henry James Morris, and Matthew Bodame. This intelligence was very gratifying, and most assuredly added to the pleasurable contemplation of having the privilege of holding out a helping hand to the fleeing bondman. From James Morris, one of this company, however, Letters of a painful nature were received, touching his wife in bonds, setting forth her awful situation, and appealing to the committee to use their best endeavors to rescue her, with her child, from slavery. One of these letters, so full of touching sentiments of affection and appeal on behalf of his wife, is as follows. Toronto, Canada West, Upper, 18th day of the ninth month, 1856. Mr. William Still, Dear Sir, I hope these lines may find you and your family as they leave me. Give my respects to little Caroline and her mother. Dear Sir, I have received two letters from my wife since I saw you, and the second was awful. I am sorry to say she says she has been treated awful since I left, and she told the lady she thought she was left free, and she told her she was as much slave as ever she was, that the state was not to be settled until her death, and it would be a miracle if she and her child got it then, and that her master left a great many relations, and she didn't know what they would do. Mr. Still, dear sir, I am very sorry to hear my wife and child are slaves, 
if you please, dear sir, inform me what to do for my dear wife and child. She said she has been threatened to be put in jail three times since I left. Also she tells me that she is washing for the captain of a vessel that used to run to Petersburg, but now he runs to Baltimore, and he has promised to take her to Delaware or New York for fifty dollars, and she had not the money she sent to me, and I sent her all I had, which was five dollars. Dear sir, can you inform me what to do with a case of this kind? The captain's name is Thomas. My wife is named Lucy Ann Morris. My child is named Lot. If you please, dear sir, answer me as soon as you can possible. Henry James Morris, Toronto, C.W. Henry James Morris, in care of William George Blunt, Center Street, two doors from Elam. This sad letter made a mournful impression, as it was not easy to see how her deliverance was to be effected. One feature, however, was this epistle afforded much satisfaction, namely, to know that James did not forget his poor wife and child, who were in the prison house. Many months after this first letter came to hand, Mrs. Dr. Willis, one of the first ladies in Toronto, wrote on his behalf as follows. Toronto, 15th June, Monday morning, 1857. To Mr. Still, dear sir, I write you this letter for a respectable young man. His name is James Morris. He passed through your hands July of last year, 1856, and has just had a letter from his wife, whom he left behind in Virginia, that she and her child are likely to be sold. He is very anxious about this, and wishful that she could get away by some vessel or otherwise. His wife's name is Lucy Morris, the child's name is Lot Morris. The lady's name she lives with is a Mrs. Hine, I hope I spell her name right, Hine, at the corner of Duke Street and Washington Street in Norfolk City, Virginia. She is hired out to this rich old widow lady. James Morris wishes me to write you. He has saved forty dollars, and will send it to you whenever it is required to bring her on to Toronto, Canada West. It is in the bank ready upon call. Will you please, sir, direct your letter in reply to this to a Mrs. Ringgold, Center Street, two doors from Elam Street, Toronto, Canada West, as I will be out of town. I write this instead of Mr. Thomas Henning, who is just about leaving for England. Hoping you will reply soon, I remain, sir, respectfully yours, Agnes Willis. Whether James ever succeeded in recovering his wife and child is not known to the writer. Many similarly situated were wont to appeal again and again, until growing entirely hopeless, they would continue to marry. Here it may be remarked, with reference to marrying, that of the great number of fugitives in Canada, the male sex was largely in preponderance over the female, and many of them were single young men. This class found themselves very acceptable to Irish girls, and frequently legal alliances were the result. And it is more than likely that there are white women in Canada today who are married to some poor slave woman's fugitive husband. Verily, the romantic and tragic phases of the Underground Railroad are without number, if not past finding out. Scarcely had the above-mentioned nine left the Philadelphia depot ere the following way-worn travelers came to hand. Perry Shepard and Isaac Reed, Eastern Shore, Maryland. George Sperryman, alias Thomas Johnson, Richmond. Valentine Spires, near Petersburg. Daniel Green, alias George Taylor, 
Leesburg, Virginia, James Johnson, alias William Gilbert, and wife Harriet, Prince George's County, Maryland, Henry Cooper, and William Israel Smith, Middletown, Delaware, Anna Dorsey, Maryland. Although starting from widely separated localities within the slightest communication with each other in the South, each separate prisoner, earnestly bent on freedom, had endured suffering, hunger, and perils by land and water, sustained by the hope of ultimate freedom. Perry Shepherd and Isaac Reed reported themselves as having fled from the eastern shore of Maryland, that they had there been held to service or slavery by Sarah Ann Burgess and Benjamin Franklin Houston, from whom they fled. No incidents of slave life or travel were recorded, save that Perry left his wife, Milky Ann, and two children, Nancy and Rebecca, free. Also, Isaac left his wife, Hester Ann Louisa, and the following named children, Philip Henry, Harriet Ann, and Jane Elizabeth. George Sperryman's lot was cast amongst the oppressed in the city of Richmond, Virginia. Of the common ills of slave life, George could speak from experience. But little of his story, however, was recorded at the time. He had reached the committee through the regular channel, was adjudged worthy of aid and encouragement, and they gave it to him freely. Nicholas Templeman was the loser in this instance. How he bore the misfortune the committee was not apprised. Without question, the property was delighted with getting rid of the owner. Valentine Spires came a fellow passenger with George, having took out the previous Christmas from a place called Dunwoody near Petersburg. He was held to service in that place by Dr. Jesse Squires. Under his oppressive rules and demands, Valentine had been convinced that there could be no peace. Consequently, he turned his attention to one idea, freedom and the Underground Railroad and with this faith worked his way through to the committee, and was received and aided, of course. David Green fled from Warrington, near Leesburg. Elliot Curlett so alarmed David by threatening to sell him, that the idea of liberty immediately took possession in David's mind. David had suffered many hardships at the hands of his master, but when the auction block was held up to him, that was the worst cut of all. He became a thinker right away, Although he had a wife and one child in slavery, he decided to flee for his freedom at all hazards, and accordingly he carried out his firm resolution. James Johnson. This article was doing unrequited labor as the slave of Thomas Wallace in Prince George County, Maryland. He was a stout and rugged-looking man of thirty-five years of age. On escaping, he was fortunate enough to bring his wife Harriet with him. She was ten years younger than himself, and had been owned by William T. Wood, by whom she said she had been well treated. But of late, this Wood had taken to liquor, and she felt in danger of being sold. She knew that rum ruined the best of slaveholders, so she was admonished to get out of danger as soon as possible. Charles Henry Cooper and William Israel Smith. These passengers were representatives of the peculiar institution of Middletown, Delaware. Charles was owned by Catherine Mendine, and William by John P. Cather. According to their confession, Charles and William, it seemed, had been thinking a good deal over the idea of working for nothing, of being daily driven to support others, while they were rendered miserable thereby. So they made up their minds to try the Underground Railroad, 
hit or miss. This resolution was made and carried into effect, on the part of Charles at least, at the cost of leaving a mother, three brothers, and three sisters in slavery, without hope of ever seeing them again. The ages of Charles and William were respectively twenty-two and twenty-one, both stout and well-made young men, with intellects well qualified to make the wilderness of Canada bud and blossom as they rose, and thitherward they were dispatched. Anna Dorset became tired of slavery in Maryland, where she reported that she had been held to service by a slaveholder known by the name of Eli Molesworth. The record is silent as to how she was treated. As a slave, she had been brought up a seamstress, and was quite intelligent. Age, twenty-two, mulatto. End of section six.